Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. When Nancy Mesner looks at a drop of water under a microscope, she peers into another world, one teeming with microscopic creatures that inspire her to action. To look down into a microscope at what actually is in a drop of water and see all these living organisms and all their different behaviors, and uh, it's, just, it's just unbelievable to me. I just I, I'm, I never, ever get tired of it. Mesner is associate professor in the Department of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University and a water quality specialist for the state. She is tonight's featured speaker for USU's Science Unwrapped series and will be talking about the importance of water quality and each person's role in conserving the water supply. Marine ecology and working in a lab studying the ultraviolet radiation effects of phytoplankton set the stage for the rest of her education and her long career in water preservation. Both of those things combined just got me kind of interested in aquatic life. And so I went up to University of Washington, got a master's degree there in zoology, looking at a little critter that lives in one of the lakes, but really got interested in fixing problems rather than just studying the ecology of the lake. So I went over into engineering and got another master's degree there. Mesner appropriately titled this evening's talk, Water is Life, Quality Matters, Changing the World, A Few Drops at a Time. The water is life part is is what really catches my imagination and keeps me in awe always, turning over a rock in a stream and finding all this life under there. And so there's that aspect of it. And there's also, of course, just that we depend on water for life. And so that's so important there as well. Um, and then I think that what I have just really loved um, about what I do is 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 being able to you know, in my own little corner of the world, try to actually affect change in how we how we manage our waters, keeping it cleaner or, or you know, either protecting waters or improving them. And then a lot of what I do is also um, educational, and so I work with a lot of different groups, with kids, with farmers, with the agencies. And um, I think I'm just enough of a people person. I really enjoy that interaction at all those different levels. Before I ask you more about that, I wanted to ask you what what you see when you look under a microscope. If you could describe what a drop of water looks like. What you see with the kind of microscopes I use, you can't see the, the one-celled algae. And so what I've got in the presentation are just are micrographs or pictures of cells that are really just, you know, they're a millionth of a, of a meter. I mean, they're just tiny, tiny. And they, um, they're beautiful. They're just gorgeous. They're little glass boxes, and there's these little funny things with little, you know, extensions on them. And every one of them is just an amazing little example of, of, of evolution. And, um, and then as you get into the, 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 the big guys, the animals, <laughs> these are the things that look like sort of the, the eye of a needle or something about that size um, in real life. Um, and those are mostly, we call them zooplankton. They're little teeny dots you might see jetting around in a lake if you're swimming and really look closely. And they're mostly um, little crustaceans or, or related kinds of animals. They've got little sort of little shells, not really shells, but sort of a carapace, kind of like a really teeny tiny lobster or, or a crab. And so they're related to those. They're all arthropods. And they, um, they too, there's just these whole groupings of these. And every one of them is an example of something just fascinating to me. You know, you've got these little guys called Daphnia. 
that are actually all girls. They're they're all females. <laughs> when I when I go uh, talk to you know groups of girls about science, I bring these along, and it's like girls rule. You know, <laughs> they make they make males only when conditions get really awful. <laughs> Yeah, so every one of them has these kind of nutty, you know, life strategies, we call them. And once you get into the big things, you know, the the insects and things that live under the rocks and streams, um, they too just have all sorts of fascinating, fascinating adaptations for living under the water. We'll have some displays, some of the after um, events. We'll have some um, some fun sort of interactive activities looking at some of the adaptations of some of these guys to, to living in the water. How concerned are you about these water systems and these organisms, healthy <laughs> organisms that are living in the water and, and, the, and these streams around us here? I work mostly in the field of, of surface natural waters, right? So it's rivers and lakes and reservoirs, wetlands, the stuff that's all around us. And um, there's, there's a lot more of that in the state than we tend to think. You know, we've got thousands, probably 15, almost over 14,000 miles of just rivers and streams in the state. And and we've got um, a couple of thousands reservoirs and lakes. So, so there's more water than you think. And so that's the area that I work in. And, um, and I work with the Division of Water Quality a lot. They are the state agency. They're really charged with, with doing the, the statewide assessments. And statewide, about two-thirds of both streams and this whole streams, rivers, and also the lakes and reservoirs are in good shape. And uh, then there's the third that aren't, and there's just a whole suite of things that cause problems. You know, and it just you know it depends on where they are and what kind of land uses are near them. So I'm actually rarely discouraged. I'm usually I feel like we have a good approach for dealing with water quality problems, and it's a process. It's it's education. It's changing people's behaviors, it's changing how we use the land. And so it's not going to happen overnight, but I think we do see change. And that's that to me is very promising. That's very encouraging. Change in behaviors that are all affecting the quality of the water? Yeah, I think change in behaviors, uh, we probably see actually before we see the change in the water, which is kind of ironic, really. But, um, and I'll talk a little about that also in this talk. But, uh, for example, when I first moved here just well, now about 25 years ago, but it was still not that uncommon for people to, you know, dump dead animals in a river because it was just a convenient way to get rid of the animals, right? And, um, and, and you don't find this anymore. It's just not accepted, and people have just realized that that's not a reasonable approach. And, you know, back back when there are only a few people on a river, yeah, that might have made sense. But we were, there's too many of us now, and we're all over the place. And so it just takes a while for folks to kind of look up and go, oh, you know, that's, that's not going to work. I see it in um, our certainly urban dwellers, I think, are more it's not perfect, but they're better about picking up animal waste. They're better about not dumping things down a storm drain. They're better about keeping fertilizer on their lawn and not on a sidewalk. So all of these things that are pretty easy fixes but cumulatively send a lot of pollution into our waters. And, and I do see changes in those. In terms of measuring the impact, we see that, but... It's it's difficult to measure this in these kinds of rivers and streams that we have in Utah. There really there's a lot of variability. One year to the next, there's a lot of change in flow, and things are just really different from you know from one day to the next. 
And that means that you have to be really smart about how you sample and, and monitor, and you also have to be kind of lucky, and you have to do a lot of monitoring. And so uh, much of what I do these days is work with people around the state on helping them develop better ways to detect that change because it's not always easy. How do you monitor? Do you take samples from different parts of the river? And then if you could describe that. Yeah, there's well, there's different approaches. And, and like many, as in many things, I think the the best way is to use multiple approaches and see if you get the same answer <laughs> or at least something that looks like the same. I've done most of my work in measuring the chemistry in these systems. And so looking at, you know, collecting water samples and measuring it for nutrients, for phosphorus or for nitrogen, or measuring it for how much dissolved oxygen is in the water, these sorts of things that that tell us whether the water is clean enough for fish or clean enough for people to use them. You know, we go and take samples and we measure bacteria that are growing in them, these sorts of things. Um, Other people, um, another whole area of monitoring is to actually look at the animals that are living in the streams and rivers and lakes. And so they, um, there's a, there's a huge effort involved in um, sampling stream bottoms and seeing whether the streams, whether the assemblage of organisms that you find there are a healthy group of organisms are they do you find the ones do you find the critters that are most sensitive to pollution because if you don't find them and you would expect them there that suggests that maybe sometime in the past there was a problem so that kind of gives you a longer term look and then there's an even longer term look where people look at sort of how rivers are functioning are they when they flood do they go up into their into their um, flood plains which is actually a good thing because then the water drains down in more filtered back into the river and you know, are they are do they have sort of a natural flow to them? Do they go back and forth in kind of a sinuous pattern as opposed to just sort of being channelized and then they get too steep? Those kinds of things. So there's a lot of different ways of doing it. It reminds me of a, uh, a trip I took on an airboat on the Great Salt Lake with Wayne Wurtzbaugh. He took a jar and it was filled with insects actually. And this part of the lake that we were in, it just was there were so many insects in it. And he was saying that was a sign of the water being too polluted. Often the sign of the type of pollution we get around here, and and especially in the bays in the Great Salt Lake, as opposed to the open part of the lake, uh, a, a lot of um, a lot of the problems in this state are and across the country are driven by too many nutrients fertilizers that get into the stream or into the into the water bodies. The Great Salt Lake has a bunch of uh, wastewater treatment plants that discharge into into these areas, and there's a lot of just runoff from you know our yards and from our fields and you know natural areas. All of those bring both phosphorus and nitrogen into our lakes and into the Great Salt Lake. And it feeds those microscopic plants. They feed those little insects and zooplankton I was talking about. And then they feed fish if you have a system that has fish. Um, Part of the Great Salt Lake doesn't have fish, of course. Or most of the main lake doesn't have fish, just the bays. But... um, when you put too many nutrients in the water, you sort of heat the whole thing up. <laughs> and then you get all, you, you know, you have those green lakes. You have those lakes with green scum on top of them. And then you get a whole lot of problems. Uh, one of them is that when all that stuff dies, it decomposes. It sucks oxygen out of the water. And it can kill fish because they need to get the oxygen out of the water. Um, other problems are sometimes those 
all that green, those green algae, all those algae um, actually create f- toxins when they get so concentrated. And so the water isn't safe for people to be in. I mean, there's just a lot of, a lot of problems. And so, you know, as, as with a lot of things, a little is fine. In fact, a little is good in terms of nutrients because it kind of feeds the ecosystem. But a lot is, is, is when you get into trouble. And is there anything that can be done to treat that water aside from decreasing the amount of fertilizers and pollution? I got to tell you, prevention is really the way to go. (laughs) Back when I was, you know, in school eons ago, um, that's actually what we learned a lot about was how to fix lakes, you know, and they taught us all these techniques of, you know, sort of engineering solutions to fixing lakes. We would draw them down or we would throw, you know, chemicals in them or we would bubble oxygen into them and that would fix them. And at some point, I think everybody sort of stopped and they looked up and they said, you know, we're never really going to fix it unless we fix the water that's draining into this lake. And then we all kind of looked upstream and said, oh, oh, it's the watershed we have to fix. (laughs) And that's, I think, why we are much more anymore involved in treating the non-point sources, all the stuff that runs off in the watersheds, because it accumulates and collects. And then also in the case of, of some wastewater treatment plants in Utah and in other states, there are ways to treat the, um, the waste in these, in these large concentrated facilities. You can actually treat the waste so that it will remove the nu- nutrients as well. And, uh, and then you know, the water that goes into, into a lake no longer has those high concentrations. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 everybody's got to do their part, and it's not cheap, but it's a lot cheaper than losing the use of these beautiful water bodies. Right, and that brings to mind the Bear Lake, which is just so beautiful It's when it's, it's turquoise-colored. And I understand that phosphorus and sediments are, are the issues there. Is that right? And can you go into a little bit more detail about the health of Bear Lake? Yeah, Bear Lake is really a unique lake. It's it's one of a kind around here because it's a marl lake. So it has all of that, that sort of chalky color, you know, that beauti- that causes the beautiful sort of milky blue. That's because it has a huge amount of calcium carbonate that is just it's there's so much of it that it actually kind of precipitates into some solid that stays in the water column. That particular type of chemistry actually sort of pulls phosphorus out of the water, but it's not really available to the plants that would take it out of the water because the phosphorus is kind of tied up with these little particles. And so it's an unusual (laughs) and kind of unique. Now, um, Mud Lake and the water that drains into it, you know, from above, there's a lot of nutrients there, and people do pay very close attention to Bear Lake because there are plenty of examples around the world where enough pollution in the forms of form of high nutrient water has been dumped into a beautiful marl lake that it's actually shifted and become a green lake instead. So it's um, so it, people keep an eye on it, but right now it's 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 unusual and and kind of unique and still is, is holding its own to my knowledge. But that doesn't mean that you can just dump stuff into it. <laughs> it hosts some native species of, of fish, correct? Like the, the cutthroat? Yes. Native species, several native species of fish. And, of course, Bonneville cutthroat is through that drainage, which is a, a unique species. Um, 
And then there's also some things called ostracods and other kinds of little invertebrates that are unique in the lake as well. So, uh, yeah, no, there are species of fish that aren't seen anywhere else in the world that are in Bear Lake. With another drought being projected for the summer, what is your outlook on the watersheds in Utah and and the low levels right now of reservoirs and I mean I read the papers like you do pretty much and I and I have worked a bit with some of the folks that are trying to come up with better strategies for s- protecting our water um, saving it through either keeping it in groundwater keeping it in wet meadows you know letting our rivers flood and then sort of drain back slowly so there's ways we can take care of our our rivers and s- streams that will make them function better so that we'll actually have more water throughout the year. So I'm interested in those kinds of things. I think as a projection, there may be some some adjustments that will have to be made in terms of what, what people plant, um, you know, so that there's not as much corn, for example, because it requires irrigation late in the season, because it's going to be late in the season where some of these issues express themselves. Um, the other part of low water, of course, is that when you are so strapped for water, and I mean, we are already are strapped for water. We're the second driest state in the country. You know, it seems to me it's an even stronger case for protecting the water that we have. Because you can have as much water as you want, but if it is too saline or if it's got toxins in it, it really doesn't matter. You can't use it. <laughs> so we want, to, um, we want to take good care of the limited water that we do have. And how complicated is managing the Bear River watershed, for example, with, I understand, two other states are involved? The um, rivers that go through, that cross state lines, like the Bear River, like the Colorado, obviously, have a federal compact and a a set of individuals are appointed from each of the states and some federal representatives who are the commissioners who manage this compact. And what the and and this is a legal document that determines how the quantity of water is managed from one state to the, to the next, how it's distributed. And uh, water quality in Bear River, especially uh, in particular, but also now in the in the Colorado and some of the other the other rivers. Uh, these these folks have, have begun to understand that they're also looking at water quality, not just quantity. So in the case of the Bear River, there is really good cooperation between the three states in terms of the quantity. And um, there's been a lot of effort at trying to kind of uh, make adjustments or, or do our measurements and sort of do our maps and things in ways that it's easier to compare state to state. Um, but they also, the commission also has a water quality committee now. And so each state has representative as a representative on this water quality committee. So they meet as well. And so they talk about water quality um, across state lines, just like the commissioners talk about water quantity. And um, I think it works pretty well, actually. I'm pretty impressed by the process. And we're just almost at our time, but I wanted to ask you about the volunteer monitoring programs and the Utah Streamside Science Program. If you we could talk about the the volunteer programs first and how people can get involved and what they actually do. Sure. About a year ago, well, we started a uh, Utah Water Watch. Uh, Brian Green is the coordinator of the program statewide, and um, he can be found through, if you just Google Utah Water Watch, um, it'll just pop up. 
um, also through our water quality extension website at USU. Um, you can all the links are there. Um, the first year he's been focusing, we've been focusing on um, kind of educational level monitoring. So you've got about 100 volunteers now around the state in just a year that are going out and taking interesting samples, learning about how streams and lakes work, doing some kind of screening level of bacteria monitoring. Um, there's some control over it. He works with the volunteers and with the State Division of Water Quality, our main partner, to make sure that these sites are, are good sites. The data is sent to him, and we've, we've almost got an online database set up so that pretty soon people will be able to enter into an online database or through an app that we're developing. And now we're moving into what we call our second tier, which is going to be a collection of uh, more credible data that can be used by the state in determining whether water is improving, kind of looping back to what we were talking about at the very beginning. And uh, these folks will have a higher level of training. They have to have some experience with uh, Utah Water Watch already. And uh, they'll be working side-by-side with watershed coordinators and other people that are out there actually implementing changes on the, on these, in these watersheds. And they'll be doing a higher level of monitoring. So we're very excited about moving into this next phase. We'll continue the educational phase because that's just fabulous. So um, citizen science is just exciting. You know, it gets people engaged. It, they learn a lot. We learn a lot. And I think, you know, everybody becomes more invested in protecting waters. And then uh, Streamside Science is a uh, set of lesson plans, a curriculum that we developed a number of years ago now that are based on um, hands-on activities, also based on monitoring activities. This is a program that teachers in regular schools and also informal educators use for classrooms or for, you know, informal activities. And um, these different activities, um, the teachers have lesson plans and they can, uh, and we and we train them on how to use all of these. And so teachers that have been trained have, I think, a really good idea on how to take kids outside, get them sampling, and then bring the data back and really have an informed conversation on what the data mean, learn how to do some simple statistics, start making connections. Um, so they're sampling water quality. They're looking at the animals that live in the streams. They're looking at, they're discussing policy questions, a lot of different things. It's been shown to increase knowledge, but also um, attitudes, improve attitudes. So we're very hopeful. We, we really feel strongly about working with young people as a way to really mediate change in attitudes and, and understanding. Right. It seems like that's the key, really. And I know it's, it must be exciting for you to be in the classroom, too, with those uh, ninth graders and such. And just the excitement and their curiosity is really inspiring. Yeah, no, it's a, a positive feedback loop. <laughs> you know, it really is. They, uh, what's fun for me is to get kids out, teachers out, too, actually, who have never done much in a stream or, you know, in, out in nature at all. And they kind of hold back at first, and you start sort of showing them what's what's going on and talk about things. They get in, they start sampling, they're turning around rocks, and they're looking at what's in the water. And all of a sudden, they're just totally there. You can't get them out. <laughs> and uh, that's that's huge to me. That's That's a change. Next, Science Questions explores the salty organisms in Great Salt Lake with biologist Bonnie Baxter. But first we go into the classroom, where a group of fourth graders are surprised to learn that what happens in Salt Lake City happens in the lake. 
time it takes a leaf to fall, a flower could bloom. Support for Science Questions is provided by Apogee Instruments at Cache Valley, creating innovative sensors for measuring climate change, sustainable food production, and renewable energy. More information is at apogeeinstruments.com. Did you know that graduates of instructional technology and learning sciences can land high-paying jobs in several different sectors, including K-12 and higher education, corporate America, government, and government subcontractors? Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Support for Science Questions also comes from the College of Science at Utah State University, where graduates' acceptance rates to medical, dental, and graduate schools exceed national averages. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information is at usu.edu science. Cycle. Okay, what is the water cycle? Is it something that you ride on a lake and you pedal? Um, the water cycle, it kind of just like keeps on going. You are listening to the sound of rain. Well, coming from Madeline Choir School fourth graders spray bottles, simulating what happens to our watershed when it really does rain. Amy Green, a storm engineer, teamed up with fourth grade science teacher Ms. Andrea Sline to teach students about water quality and pollution. Okay, you guys, who here loves science? Oh, good, good. This is going to make it so much more fun. Okay, I work for public utilities in the water department, and the best part about my job is I get to come and talk to you guys about water quality. Green brought into the classroom a ceramic model of the Jordan River watershed, about the size of a coffee table, full of brightly colored houses nestled in the mountains alongside residential farms with chickens and cows, dogs, and a factory. Green totes this model around to teach students what happens daily in our watershed and about the consequences when it rains. So what would happen if I rained up here in the trees on the top of this hill? Where do you think the water would flow? Uh, down the hill. Down the hill. In into what river? Aha, good job. Can you guys all cup your hands? Okay. This is a little watershed. Can you picture it? Okay. What would happen if I poured water right up here on your thumb? Where would the water drain to? The center. What do you think is at the center of the Jordan River watershed? And right at the very end is going to be the Great Salt Lake. Green defines two pollution sources in our watershed. Point source pollution that comes from an identified place such as a factory, factories being the leading polluters of our water. And then there is a non-point kind, pollution that comes from many sources and hard to identify, the focus also of this afternoon. Green starts by pulling out some scripts. Are you guys ready? Yes. I need eight, oh, oh, oh. eight readers. I'm a reader. Oh, oh. I'm a reader. I'm a reader. I'm a reader. The eager volunteers each hold a script. Then Green pulls out an arsenal of anonymous substances with which the students, one by one, begin to contaminate our watershed. First, we hear about Roscoe. Roscoe lives in the greenhouse, and every morning he notices his car is leaking oil. He drives it to the factory and home every day. It takes Roscoe over a month to get his car fixed. 
Students simulate Roscoe's leaky commute, pouring an oily brown substance all along the road to the factory and back. Uncle Jesse is a farmer in Hazard Country and plows his field and harvest crops all year long. Last year, he decided to increase the amount of land he farms by removing trees that line the edges of his field. Now Uncle Jesse has more room to plant crops. But you know what those trees were doing? They were protecting his field from wind and from water. So now he's removed all those trees. He's got all this exposed soil, and he's tilled it up for his crops. And it's about to be the rainy season, and there's no plants growing on it to stabilize his soil. So guess where all his soil's going to go? Into the lake. After Uncle Jesse causes a little erosion, the students begin to sprinkle fine dust all over the lawns, but it gets all over the sidewalks and into the streets. Whoa. What is that? Oh, it's sugar. It's Kool-Aid. It is? Okay, and who else fertilizes? There's two other places that fertilize a lot. Yep, the the farmer, he fertilizes his crops because he wants his crops to grow. Who else fertilizes? The biggest one of all, because you guys all said you like to do it. The golf course. A busy person and does not really like to mow her lawn. So she hires a gardener. One day, Daisy comes home early to see the gardener cleaning up after mowing and sees him blowing the clippings down to the street and into the storm drain. Her gardener's blowing it all over the street and down the gutter. Has anybody seen this in town? Yeah. 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 I see it every day. Whose parents blow their grass? One lucky student had the important job of squirting a tube full of fudge along the pretend borders of the Jordan River. What smelled like chocolate looked an awful like... Oh, yeah. Yay. Yay. Hey, here you go. Keep scratching chocolate. That's fun. Oh, okay. Oh, and who, who here has a dog? Do you guys all have dogs? Oh, and did you guys know? Did you guys know that the city has rules about where you can walk your dog? Yes. You did. Did you know that in our upper upper watersheds on uh, City Creek, Big Cottonwood, Little Cottonwood, did you know that that's that that's where our drinking water comes from? No. Yeah. 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 I don't so what about those people who break the rules? They get a big sign. They get a so big sign. So does this watershed look clean? No. 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 Do you live in this type of watershed? Yes. It's getting a little dark. I feel the thunder. Can anybody hear the thunder? Oh, I hear it. Okay, let's make it rain. Whoa, oh my goodness. What would you guys do if you were swimming in this lake right here? You would get out? Are you sure? And what's making the water flow to the big lake? What force? Gravity! Right. So all the fertilizer and pesticides and animal waste, who knows what that does to the water? This is a big process. Do you know how fertilizer provides nutrients for plants? Yeah. Well, fertilizer and animal waste provides nutrients for this lovely plant called algae. Has anybody seen algae in the Jordan River? No. Yes. Well, algae is a natural process. But with an excess amount of fertilizer and, and animal waste, it makes the algae grow so much faster and produces way more algae than the river can handle. Do you know what happens to algae? Algae grows and grows and, grows, and then it blooms and it reproduces 
and then it dies. <laughs> and when it dies, it goes all the way to the bottom <coughs> of the river, and it sucks out all the oxygen. <gasps> what do you think happens to the animals and the plants? If the, what happens? They die. They die. What would you guys do if you were swimming in the river and a dead fish, fish floated by? What would you do? Uh, I'd catch it and then take it to my house and eat it for dinner. No way. Because <laughs> you don't know what made it die. Ew. But I yeah. Yeah. We don't want dead fish, do we? And to keep the river healthy, we have to do what we can to reduce the amount of pollutants. I could. Because if we can reduce the amount of pollutants, it's the closest we can be to a natural process. Have you, any of you guys walked on the sidewalk and heard crunch, crunch, crunch? Yeah. Uh, yes. Guess what that is? Fertilizer. fertilizer. So what can you do if, you're, if your mom and dad are fertilizing and you see that they're getting some on the sidewalk, what do you think the best thing to do with that fertilizer is? You guys can get a broom and sweep it up for them. Oh, yeah. And guess what else your parents will like about you guys sweeping? One, you're helping. And two, you're going to save them money because they're not going to waste so much fertilizer. You guys were awesome. Let's thank Amy for coming and bringing this awesome model. Thank you so much. I was quite influenced by this fourth grade science class. And since, I have found myself raking leaves, not only on my lawn, but also raking up leaves that have spilled into my street. Yes, I am now raking the street, and that might sound a bit crazy or overboard. But now I realize that what goes into the sewer system beyond my house isn't treated, and I haven't stopped thinking about my leaves getting into the Jordan River, causing algae and dead floating fish, and last, clogging up our beautiful Great Salt Lake. The lake appears out of this world with its rose-colored hues and salt-crested shorelines. It is this alien quality that attracted Dr. Bonnie Baxter, director of the Great Salt Lake Institute and professor of biology at Westminster College, to the hypersaline lake. The microbes that I study mostly are in the North Arm. I'm really interested in the most extreme life in the lake, um, and those are they're pink, they're orange, they're red um, because of the pigmentation. And under a microscope, you can look at the single cells, and they look, um, some of them are rods, some of them are spheres, some of them are triangles, some of them are squares, with really unique shapes compared to just average everyday bacteria, which are usually just rods or spheres, or sometimes spirals. We have all of those and more in Great Salt Lake. We have pyramids that twirl around when they swim, really unusual cells. The close-ups of the microbes are kind of interesting, uh, but then they're also just so beautiful when they're growing in things that are visible to the eye, in colonies of, you know, hundreds of thousands of cells will grow in one little colony, and they'll make these beautiful orange and red and pink colonies. And so. Um, I have some images of those that are really almost like modern art. The railroad causeway extends from the east to west shore of Great Salt Lake, just about right through the middle of the lake, dividing it in half. Prior to the 1950s, before it was built, 
The lake was around 17 to 20 percent salinity, and that dipped only during times of heavy rain. I asked Bonnie Baxter what the lake would normally be like without the causeway barrier. It's, it's a very curious question, like uh, at the microbial level, who was living at the time when the whole lake was open, and um, are those community members still present, or are there totally new bacteria that live here? Uh, we, we have no way of testing that. How do they survive in the, such the harsh environment? So they have a lot of strategies, and there are people all over the world who've been working in different salty ecosystems. There's been a lot of work done to show how microbes um, maintain themselves at this high level of salt. So you couldn't take a bacteria from a freshwater lake and put them in Great Salt Lake. They wouldn't live. Um, So these microbes are highly evolved for this specific location. And they have uh, salt pumps, for instance, that um, can pump sodium out of their cells and they accumulate potassium inside their cells, for instance, to kind of equilibrate. So they have some special strategies for living in salt that our cells don't have. And, I mean, are there uh, human applications from learning from these microbes? Yeah, so a lot of the applications that my students are involved in research on, one, for instance, would be bioremediation. If we can find microbes in this lake that can live at high salt, which we will, and can also digest oil. So there's oil seeps at the north arm. So there's organisms that have been living next to oil seeps. They, they probably use that as a carbon source. They probably know how to eat oil. And in terms of bioremediation and cleaning up from um, oil drilling sites, um, there are these saltwater ponds left over from the extractions that they do. And so it would be a really incredible application if we could find a microbe who does that naturally and insert them into these salty places to ingest any oil that's left over. I'm also very interested in UV light. And one of the strategies these microbes have for preventing UV damage is um, these pigments that I talked about. So can these pigments be used in sunscreen applications in humans? Um, And there's some evidence that at least they have some moderate effect. These pigments are also incredible antioxidants. And then we have projects where we're looking at biofuel possibilities um, from the algae of the lake. And there are a number of scientists involved in that project. How is the health of the lake right now? Uh, that's another one I'd like to give the flippant answer I don't know to. If you were to ask me how healthy is Lake Michigan, there are actual numbers um, that have been set, environmental standards that have been set, and we know if we exceed one of those standards that the health of the lake is in jeopardy. If you ask that about many of the lakes around the world, you'll get those answers. Um, You can't ask that about Great Salt Lake because, particularly terminal lakes, these numbers haven't been set yet. We've set one standard for selenium in the lake, but we've not set anything else. And so that needs to be done so we know what our healthy parameters are and we know when we cross those benchmarks that we're in trouble. But it's actually kind of challenging because water that you drink has a really different set of standards than water that is in a terminal lake. And for that reason, you know, we dump our sewage after it's been through some cleaning into the lake. People have trashed a lake. We dump tailings in from mining into the lake. So those things are direct inputs, and because it's a terminal lake, it has no outlet. Those things don't leave. 
so that was okay by everybody because we weren't drinking the water. So our standards were pretty low. But some brilliant duck hunters got busy and started saying, well, if you're dumping stuff in the lake, it's getting in the brine shrimp, which my ducks are eating. Um, should we be eating these ducks? And when they found these ducks that had mercury in their livers, it started to be a concern. But the mercury issue, I, I don't think we're going to get at the solution until we, and this is my prejudice, of course, until we look at the microbiology. Because it's the bacteria that are going to convert the mercury into something that is more toxic, into methylated mercury. So if we don't ask, you know, what are the bacteria doing, we really can't control anything in the system. The mercury is there and it's going to be there. We So it's going to be processed by the bacteria before it enters the food chain. We're not in an EPA citation. We're not in a crisis moment with the lake. But we have some indicators that things aren't healthy. And also, I mean, no work has been done to say when the lake is in a desiccated phase, when it's dried up and it's shrinking, we leave behind all this salt dust. What other pollutants are we leaving behind that becomes airborne when we get a good wind going around here? So in terms of the air quality issues, there may very well be things coming in. And also chloride ions can deplete ozone. So what's happening when we're pumping chlorine into the air, even naturally, that's released into the environment and depleting ozone. But all of us are going to work to make sure we have a system to know when it's healthy and when it's not healthy, because a healthy lake benefits everybody. Professor Nancy Mesner recognizes the work ahead required to preserve all of our Utah water systems and offers encouragement. We have a tendency to, to view environmental issues as sort of doom and gloom, and I really do feel that, that you know, the Clean Water Act cleaned up an enormous amount of pollution. And we have huge challenges ahead, but I think that, that, that they're manageable. They do require a more collective effort, and, and so that is really the big challenge. You know, those of us in natural resource management... At some point in our lives, we realize that we're not really so much managing the natural resources, managing people. <laughs> That's the challenge, but I'm, I'm very hopeful. You can catch Nancy Mesner's Science Unwrapped talk tonight at 7 in the USU Eccles Science Learning Center Auditorium. Thank you for listening. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. Utah writer Gina Wickwar. Know what most women are petrified of? No, it's not spiders or snakes, their sleazy auto mechanics, or a smirking highway patrolman, or even a letter from the IRS. No, what a woman has the hardest time dealing with and is usually scared to confront directly is her hairstylist. It's true. I have it on the best of authority, which is my own. I spent the last five years of a 10-year relationship with a hairstylist who always used hairspray even though it made me sneeze, never remembered what shade he'd applied the last time he colored my hair. 
always forgot to blow away the hairs on my neck after a cut, and never even pretended to listen whenever I attempted to tell him about a, a new style I wanted to try. Eventually, all his other clientele deserted him for friendlier salons, but I persevered out of guilt. One day, however, he left his scissors at home and had to borrow a pair from a colleague. That was the last straw. I did leave him. I wish I could say I never looked back, but it's not true. I was haunted, thinking how much I had hurt his feelings. It all could have been avoided, I rationalized, wringing my hands, if I had just had the courage to sit down with him to explain that I hated hairspray, hated his not knowing what hair coloring I wanted, hated his not listening to me when I wanted a different cut. But I had been a coward, like so many other women." Funny thing about this is that most women are braver than a mother bear separated from her cubs. We'll charge into the principal's office and demand our child be moved to a better class. We'll spit in the eye of the meter maid who gives us a ticket. We'll confront the poor person who steps in front of us in the grocery line. We'll hound a clerk until she finds the rain check. And we'll stop at nothing to avenge a perceived slight to our spouse. But dress down a hairstylist? The problem is very basic. Your hairdresser has control over your life. He or she can make or break you. Want to look great for the upcoming awards banquet? If you've gotten on the bad side of Monsieur Pierre or Mimi, she of the red-haired spike job, you can wind up going to the dinner affair looking like Phyllis Diller. Getting on the bad side of Kimberly, the purple and orange-haired lovely, could mean you'll have yourself a head full of green hair just in time for the boss's retirement party. Or you could find yourself with hair so short your grandkids call you grandpa. Oh, it does happen. Hairstylists have a way of getting their revenge, and most women know this. As a result, they tiptoe around their stylists, hinting in a soft whisper that perhaps Jules a little longer on this side this time. Snip, 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 snip. The gentle hint obviously didn't work because now half your scalp is showing. Or, could you please not highlight it as much in front this time, McGill, darling? This pathetic plea results in a three-hour wait with your scalp wrapped in aluminum, and you look like Andy Warhol. While most of us appreciate our hairstylists, we definitely need to come to grips with our irrational fears about them and tell them straight up what we want and demand they follow our orders. Unfortunately, the holiday season is now upon us, and I'm sort of betting the women I know, including me, will put off that little conversation with our hairstylists until, say, sometime after Groundhog Day. Care to take me up on that bet? This is Gina Whitmore. Mm-hmm.